following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 7. Hope you had a good holiday weekend. We've had a lot of fun as a family. Put up the Christmas tree, all that stuff. Uh, It's a good time to be together with friends and family, and I hope you took advantage of it to the uh, fullest extent possible. I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, and then just take a few minutes here in this passage uh, this morning. Let's begin by reading, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 31 says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for uh, the fun we have had this week. It's been nice to be with friends and family, to celebrate and rejoice together. Ultimately, though, Lord, it's kind of as Ed said a few minutes ago, it's so easy for this holiday season to draw our attention away from the things that they were really designed to to be and do, uh, whether that's giving our thanks to you or remembering why you sent your son to this earth as one of us in the first place. So I pray, Father, that even beginning today here in this passage, as we read your word, as we think about this time, as we lead our families, as we speak to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, I pray, God, that in all of that stuff that we will remember what this is really all about. I pray that today as we work through this text here, we will recognize the significance even of what's going on in these few minutes together around your word. And that those of us, Lord, in this room who really have no standing before you in any way, not that any man does, but us particularly as, as Gentiles, as those who have, have lived our lives away from you, not part of your covenant people, that we will rejoice at the great news that you have come for us as well. And that your gospel and your grace and your love and your mercy, it extends to the uttermost ends of the earth that this Christ who has come has not come for just the Jews, but has come for us all. And so we give you our time together this morning. We ask that your spirit will help us understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I was talking with uh, Jordan a couple weeks ago about this passage uh, that we're going to be in today, and I was telling him it's one of those those passages I feel like it's a little tricky just to to handle, not because of its content, but because of its, of its size. As you'll see here in a few moments, both this story and the one we looked at last week, they are connected. I mean, they're, they're, clearly two different, they're clearly two different stories, and yet they share something in common that I believe is the reason why Mark has put them together the way he has here in his gospel. And so I had a choice going into last week to either try to cover both of those stories, the one we looked at last week and the one today, in, in one sermon, and try to tie those together, and I, I, I almost did that, but I felt like it would be a little disjointed, and I really wanted the message of last week to be clear and, 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 and unencumbered by anything else, but it meant that today would be a, a little bit shorter of a sermon, and so I went ahead and decided to divide them into two, and, 
and, and now I'm glad we did because we wanted to give a chance for Caleb and Isaac to come up here and speak to us, and so hopefully this will all work together. Um, as you'll recall from last week's message, Jesus had left his normal base of ministry, which was up in that northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, up near Capernaum, Nazareth, that area up there. He had left that area, and he had traveled northwest to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And and, and if you weren't here last week, or if you don't remember what I said, I just mentioned to you that this area of Tyre and Sidon is not one that you would normally expect a Jewish man, a Jewish leader, a Jewish teacher like Jesus to go to. I mean, generally, the Jews avoided any unnecessary contact with Gentiles or Gentile areas if they could, but specifically the people of Tyre and Sidon, the people of that that area known as Syrophoenicia, were, were particularly odious to the Jews, particularly to be avoided. And if you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see why. It's those people up in that area that caused a lot of problems for the Jewish people. As you get past the time of David and Solomon into the later portions of the Old Testament, you will find a number of Old Testament prophets pronouncing doom and woe upon the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon, God himself pronouncing judgment on them. And even as we come to the Gospels, we still get a sense for how they're viewed by the Jewish people because they're some of the cities that Jesus uses to provoke the Jewish people uh, himself. So what do, you, what do I mean? Well, for example, look at Matthew 11 here, verses 20 to 24. This is Jesus talking to a crowd uh, of, the, of, of the people of Israel there in front of him, and he says this, And he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And just pause for a second and recognize what he's saying. He's saying to these towns where he has spent time, in which he has his ministered, in which he has performed miracles and done teaching, he's saying to them, listen, if I had done the same stuff in these pagan Gentile cities that you really despise, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. What have these cities done? Pretty much nothing. They pretty much rejected Jesus, ignored him, etc. These Gentile uh, cities, he said, would have, would have repented. So that's what he's saying. This would have been shocking. And you're going to see where he goes next with this. Because I tell you, it's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, the city that was his home base, his hometown, the place he's done the most uh, probably ministry of any one city. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So, you know, if you're including Tyre and Sidon in with Sodom and Gomorrah, you kind of get a sense of, of how the people there view it, right? They're, they're, not, they're not looking at Tyre and Sidon as just maybe any Gentile city, no. You got Sodom, you got Gomorrah, you got Tyre, you got Sidon... These are some pretty, pretty bad places. That's why it's so unusual for someone like Jesus, a respected Jewish teacher, respected Jewish leader, to go there purposefully. He's not just passing through that region. He makes a specific trip there purposefully, and it's there that he meets this woman that we read about last week. 
she's got a problem. Her, her daughter is, is possessed by a demon. And so she comes before him and she falls on her knees and she begs, please, please cast out this demon. And for her to do this is really astonishing because this just doesn't happen. And Jesus at that point says to her, oh, of course, dear, I'll do anything for you, right? No. In fact, he does quite the opposite. He looks at her and he says, listen, it is not right to take the children's bread and to give it to the dogs. It's a, an insulting comment to her because that's how the Jewish people thought of Gentiles in general specifically and particularly true of this group here in Tyre and Sidon. He insults this woman, which is exactly, as I pointed out last week, what everyone around him expected him to do which is the point I said that should grab your attention because how often does Jesus do exactly what everyone around him expects him to do? He never does that. And yet this woman hearing the stinging comment, she doesn't, she doesn't react. She doesn't her fist up and yell at him, how dare you, who do you think you are? Don't you understand it's my child? You see none of that. You see a humble heart, yes, Lord, but even the dog's can lick up the crumbs under the children's table. She recognizes so humbly that she has no standing upon which to, to come to Jesus, and yet she is still humbly seeking his grace. And it's at this moment now Jesus finally reveals, I think, his true heart in the matter when he says, woman, great is your faith. Be it, be it done as you said. He heals her, her daughter from afar. The, 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 the demon is gone. The demon is gone. She goes home and finds him finds the, the child lying in a bed and everything's fine. And today's story, today's story is going to pick up from there. And it's going to continue in this direction that I would say is surprising and unusual. Just like it was surprising for Jesus to go to Tyre and Sidon, he's going to continue this. So, so look with me here at this next scene. Mark begins the scene by setting the stage for us on the map. He says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And to help us see that, you know, here's our, here's our map that we've been using over the last uh, few months. He started up in that top center area where it says Syrophoenicia. This is where Tyre and Sidon is. This is a, a Gentile region. And he's going to travel down from there past the Sea of Galilee to this region you see on the east side of the Jordan River known as the Decapolis. And as I've, I've explained a little bit about this in the past, but let me just refresh your memory, the Decapolis, like Syrophoenicia, is a primarily Gentile area. It gets its name from these ten major cities, Deca, Polis, Deca's ten, Polis' city, the Decapolis, ten major cities that dominated that region, and it's a Gentile area. Yes, there are some Jews there, but just like with the other area, if you're a, if you're a, a good Jewish man, a good Jewish uh, citizen, you're going to do your best to avoid this area, except for Jesus. Jesus here is leaving one Gentile area, and he is purposefully going to another Gentile area just to the southeast of his home. And that's what connects these two stories, is that both of them are happening in areas that, that are not the place you would expect a, a Jewish man of Jesus' day to, to be in. And so let's see what happens. He gets there, and Mark tells us that they bring to him a man who was deaf. And he had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, and looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephaphatha, that is a hard word to say. 
Ephaphatha. I, I probably did that a hundred times this morning. That is, be open. And I want you to notice what stands out to me here. Notice the way that he heals the man. There's six steps. Okay, Follow these. Number one, he takes the man in private. Right? He doesn't do it in public. He pulls the man away from the crowd that's gathered. He goes somewhere private to do this. Number two, he puts his fingers in his ears. Number three, he spits and then touches the man's tongue. I assume he spits on his hand. text doesn't say, but it seems to be the connection. Number four, he looks up to heaven. Number five, he sighs. And number six, he says, Ephaphatha, which is Aramaic, uh, uh, which is why Mark is translating it for us here. Remember that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Pause, quick rabbit trail. Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Greek, but everything's recorded in Greek. Occasionally, the writers of the New Testament will record his actual words. Here's one time you see his actual Aramaic word, Ephaphatha, being uh, uh, spoken here, and so you get this record of it here at this point. These, these are the steps of healing for this man. And I mean no disrespect by what I'm about to say next, but that's weird, right? I mean, like, you're sitting there thinking it, like, as you look at it all laid out for us here, and you're going, why? Well, here's what I can tell you. I don't know why he's doing it this way. Does he need to do it this way? No. One time, a long time ago, and I I probably should have done it again this week, I did a study of all the different ways that Jesus heals in the New Testament. It's a really fascinating study to do, to to find every case of of healing and, and list them out and compare how he does it, because he does it in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes he just wills it to happen. He doesn't even have to say anything. It's almost like with the, the woman here with the, the child with the demon. He doesn't say a word to the demon. He just says, look, the demon's gone. Just so you know, I've already taken care of it. So just somewhere in his, his willing of it to be, it, it happens. Sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he, he touches. Sometimes he spits on the ground and he makes clay and he wipes it on eyes. In this case, he puts fingers in ears. I mean, There's all these different ways that Jesus does this, and and you'll ask, well, why does he do it in all those different ways? Nobody knows. I did read something, though, one time that was really interesting. One person wrote, maybe Jesus did it all these ways so that we, as as the frail, sinful people that we are, wouldn't be tempted to try to to mimic him on all these points. I mean, imagine if this was the way he healed everybody right here. Then Benny Hinn, instead of slapping them with his coat, would be like putting his fingers in their ears and spitting and touching their tongue and... You know, like it would, it would be quite a, it would be quite a rigmarole to, to heal every time. And, and, and so maybe that's why I have no idea. All I know is there's no one consistent pattern of, of healing in the New Testament. Maybe that's to protect us as people. But, but regardless of why he does it this way, what happens? Well, the man's ears are opened. His tongue is released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Look, as I read this passage, I'm not really that shocked um, or that uh, moved, so to speak, if I can say it this way, by what Jesus does, because he's already done this before. I mean, if this is just another recording of another healing, there's a part of me would ask Mark, why? Like, you've already made it clear Jesus can heal. I get that, right? I mean, I don't need any further proof of that. 
per se. So, so why? I, I'm not as impressed by what Jesus does, nor am I really concerned with how he does it. Yeah, it's unusual, but he keeps changing his pattern throughout the Gospels. You find all different ways it happens. What stands out to me in this story is who he does it to this time. He does it to a Gentile. This is what connects these two stories that we've looked at over these two Sundays. And both in the first and in the second story, Jesus is doing for the Gentiles exactly what he's done for the Jews. Think about it. Put, this, put the stories together. He's cast out demons for the Jewish people, right, as he's gone from place to place. And now he meets a woman up in, in the Syrophoenician area, and he casts out a demon for her. He's healed the sick in Capernaum and Nazareth and all these other towns and now he's down in the Decapolis, and he can heal there too. In other words, he's brought restoration and healing and freedom to the nations just like he has brought it to the children of Abraham. And as you think about Mark's purpose here in this larger section that we're in, which hopefully you remember from last Sunday as I try to just give you a brief reminder of what he's doing here, Mark is trying to convince us, to show us, to prove to us that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish guy from a Jewish area, that he's more than just a man, that he's the son of God, he is the king, and here he's showing that he is the Christ the Messiah, the promised one of God. And God promised that the Messiah would do and be many things. And one of the things that he promised that the Messiah would do is that he would bring God's truth, his mercy, his grace, his life, and his light to the Gentiles, just like he does to the Jews. L listen, I just have two. Listen to the Messianic prophecies, two Messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, Jacob is Israel, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Even in the Old Testament, God is letting Israel know that this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, he's not just for them. He's for all men, all the nations, to the very end end of the earth, that God's salvation would reach to all corners of this earth and all people, regardless of their national ethnic heritage. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7, again you see this prophecy. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, God says. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. You get the sense that, that this servant is not trying to draw attention to himself. He's not out in the middle of the street saying, look at me. And what do you see Jesus doing constantly? Be quiet, be quiet. Don't talk about me, be quiet. Fulfillment of that component. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands. Where were Tyre and Sidon? Coastlands. Where were the Decapolis? Coast of the Sea of Galilee. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, my servant, as a covenant for the people, Israel, a light for the nations, the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This Messiah, he's bringing freedom and restoration and salvation to all. Jews and Gentiles alike, and in giving us these stories back to back, Mark has shown us that this Jesus has come for all mankind, not just for the Jews, but for Jew and Gentile alike. When I was originally thinking about this a few weeks ago, I wasn't really thinking about the concept of Advent. Okay, that's not a word we use a lot. Um, at least I never grew up using that word a lot. But it's talking about the season here where we remember why it is that Jesus came. And we're in the thick of it now. In fact, I was disappointed in Jordan for not giving us a Christmas song this morning, right? I mean, come on, we only got three Sundays before uh, uh, Christmas in December. But, but, but this time of Advent, it is important because it's true not just for the Jewish people, but it's true for, for all of us that, that we as Gentiles who had no right to expect God's goodness, no hope that, that God would show kindness to us, a people who were not a people, a people who were enemies. That We had no hope that God would love us enough to, to send that same Messiah for us. And yet, that's what Jesus did. He came to be the salvation for all men to the, to the ends of the earth. And if anyone should rejoice that Christ came, it should be us. We should be thankful that God gave us not just the crumbs from the table, but he gave us the riches and the fullness of being sons. And so I would close with this reminder from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. As he speaks to us as Gentiles about the glory of Jesus and what he has done for us, he says these words, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And were we brought near by our own actions or because we deserved it? He says, no. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off. That was us. And he preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you, you recognize that that's what Christmas is, is going to be pointing us to? The fact that this Messiah came so that we didn't have to be far off, 
that we didn't have to be strangers, that we didn't have to be without hope, that we could not just be made citizens but members of the house. We could become family, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God through Jesus This is what we're celebrating. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the home structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as we get ready to enter this season, folks, Just a quick challenge this morning to remember that Jesus has made us God's children. That Jesus has made us God's people. Not because we deserved it, but because God in his grace and mercy has come to those who were far off to make us his own. Let me bow your heads for just a moment. Father, we come and we bow down as those who have no standing before you. We had no standing just because of our sin, but we have even less standing because we were not, many of us, if not all of us in this room, were not a part of your covenant people. We were, as, as, as Paul says here, we were cut off from the hope of knowing you. And yet we see even here in Mark that, that Jesus, you came not, not just for the Jews, But you came for the Gentiles as well. And the freedom and the restoration and the forgiveness and the salvation that you offer to your people, you offer to us as well. And so if there are crumbs, Lord, we gladly accept them. If, If whatever it is, Lord, we are thankful for your goodness and grace and kindness to us, the most undeserving. And so as we enter this season, Lord, I just pray that in the midst of all the stuff going on around us, we will remember that this time should be the time of our greatest rejoicing, that we who were nothing, without hope, now can sing praises to the one who loved us enough that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. Help us to not only remember that ourselves, but to help our children understand this, to speak that plainly to those around us, that this is a season of great joy, but not because of the stuff. It's a season of great joy because it's a reminder of the gospel, the good news that you have sent salvation to the ends of the earth. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to live in light of it this season in your name. Amen.